G'day and welcome to episode 32 of The Other Side Australia for April 28 to May the 4th, 2021. This is your weekly summary of the best news and views from an Aussie classical liberal perspective. I'm Damien Curry. This week, Facebook bans an elected Australian Member of Parliament. King Mark McGowan frees the people of Perth from lockdown, sort of. 15-year-old boys shamed and abused at their school in Melbourne just because of their race. And a very special and important discussion on our show this week with a feminist who is not left-wing. Social scientist Edie Wyatt joins me to discuss how left-wing feminism's endless politicisation of crimes against women and girls is causing so much harm and doing no good. It's an important interview, so I hope you'll stay for that one. Just a reminder, we're anti-left and anti-woke on this show. We do not pretend to be neutral like some programs and networks do, but we don't cost you a cent. You only have to stay and watch our content if you choose to, and it's free. So let's go. The Australian government has announced that hundreds of Australian expats in India will potentially be left to die if they catch COVID, as flights back home to Australia are banned until at least May 15. Indian hospitals are overwhelmed by the COVID crisis in the country and appropriate medical care is very difficult to access. There are 9,000 registered Australians in India with thousands more unregistered. 650 of them have been identified as at risk. Regardless, the federal government sees no reason to assist these Australian citizens to make it back home and go into quarantine. In fact, they've canceled not just the commercial flights, but two planned charter flights, which were going to take Aussies to quarantine camp near Darwin. This directly affects about 500 Aussies in the next two weeks, leaving them stuck in India. And you thought your Australian citizenship and you had right of abode. Not if the politicians and bureaucrats say you don't, you don't. Craig Kelly MP, the federal member for the electorate of Hughes, a conservative independent who quit the Liberal Party after being told not to continue to talk about potential treatments for COVID-19, has now been banned by the elected government of Facebook. Wait, hang on. They're not... Oh, OK. <clears throat> They're not elected. OK. So the good people of Facebook who've been appointed by our elected government to oversee what we can and cannot watch... Sorry, Oh, they're not appointed by the elected government. Okay, so the, the oh, right. <clears throat> the free market publishers, Facebook, have exercised their right as publishers to ban Craig Kelly. Sorry, what was that? They're not, they're not publishers, they're a platform. They have special exemption from laws relating to publishers because they're a platform. But if they're banning people because of the content they're posting, isn't that acting like a publisher? Oh, oh, oh don't mention that. Okay, because we might also get, oh dear. Okay, got it. <clears throat> Craig Kelly, an independent member of Australia's federal parliament, has been rightly banned by the very good people at Facebook who only want what's best for us and know that we cannot be trusted to make up our own minds on critical issues. Facebook has exerted its power once again over our government and leaders because they care. They care about people's health. They know that free public discussion of issues doesn't allow the truth to eventually emerge in the light of day naturally, but that information must be curated to keep the wrong information, the bad information, out of the hands of bad people. They know what the bad information is, and they know who the bad people are. So we can all relax. We're in safe hands. So what has Craig Kelly actually said? Remember this from our show back in February? I would like to take my medical advice from someone who is a knowledgeable in infectious diseases, is an epidemiologist. Well, that's all. Well, you should it's listen one in that example case. In that case, you should you... listen to Professor Robert Clancy. 
He's our most senior credentialed immunologist in this country. So that's who I believe we should be listening to. Look, and he has, he has said, nothing. I'll quote exactly what he's wrote. You've, just, you've already quoted it, Craig. Well, no, I haven't. I, he also said, here, I love this is very important. He said, from uncertain beginnings, an impressive database has more recently been accumulated that strongly supports the use of hydroxychloroquine and or ivermectin. Their use in concert with the vaccine, so this is not an anti-vax position, you know, their use in concert with the vaccines can no longer be denied. In fact, this is the only science-based opinion. Mm -hmm. All our hopes are riding on a vaccine. Yes. You need to be quiet. Well, if you don't want to listen to our most senior qualified immunologists I am listening in this to them, country, and I think well, you need well, to not. start listening you to just, our scientists you just said, you and just our said, doctors, well, Craig. Our, most, our scientist is our most senior qualified immunologist in this country, okay, Professor Craig. Robert Clancy, and you are not listening to him. I'm sorry. No worries, Craig. You're in a position of responsibility, and I think you're failing in that and duty. And I'll continue, I'll continue to speak the truth and tell the truth. It'd be nice if, if you wanna, started. If the that media want to misrepresent my position, I'm going to come on and I'm going to defend it, because I will not have slander and smear and said against me when the facts are incorrect. Okay, Craig. The immunologist Robert Clancy is an emeritus professor from the University of Newcastle, Australia. That's the expert that Kelly was trying to explain to Tanya Plibersek was the main source for his comments. So ABC Radio Newcastle interviewed Professor Clancy this week and he backed Mr Kelly. On, on that issue, and you know, there are many issues that uh, uh, Mr Kelly has that I, I don't understand, but on that issue, um, my view is he's absolutely right that the, there's overwhelming evidence that um, hydroxychloroquine uh, works. Um, the studies now are just under 20,000 patients, and these are not counting the country studies because many countries are using these uh, across the board. Um, and, but, but the important thing is that it's used in very early disease. It's like treating any uh, viral illness. As I understand it, uh, Mr Kelly has, has actually followed a lot of the literature uh, and, and I think he understands that because um, when he says that hydroxychloroquine has a place in early treatment, um, I would think there are many people around the world, very, very senior people across the world uh, that would totally agree with that. And then I think his other drug is ivermectin, and that's a drug that came in a little later. And it missed the, the, the political turmoil that hydroxychloroquine got tied up with when uh, Trump used it. Uh, and and so and that's been gaining ground and the recent data that's coming out for that is it's really very persuasive and many countries now are picking this up. And that was leading immunologist Professor Robert Clancy on ABC Radio in February endorsing some of Craig Kelly's comments. That segment was from episode 22 of The Other Side Australia if you'd like to check out the whole piece. <laughs> How good are those three-day lockdowns, hey? Perth's just coming out of another one of them. Brizzy's had a couple. And Melbourne, oh, that was a good one. Not one infection outside of quarantine detected at any of them, of course. Oodles of pain and suffering caused in each lockdown. Businesses bankrupted, jobs lost, all for nothing. Also, the bureaucrats and politicians can protect their backsides. Never mind that even if there was a major health risk, we could still legitimately argue that this kind of deprivation of civil liberties might be immoral or even illegal. There isn't even a major health risk to justify considering it. Yet all the Labor Premiers are doing it time and time again. And then we have to endure these grandstanding, vacuous peacocks of public office telling us how successful they've been, 
how great they are. Let's do a little PR guy demo analysis of the Premier's press conference, shall we? I want to thank everyone for their patience and understanding over the last three days. Uh, West Australians have once again demonstrated uh, our goodwill and our commitment to eliminate the virus. Okay, this is called patting people on the back so they think you're a good bloke for something they actually haven't really done. It's all for the feels. And a bit of state rah-rah. Go WA! And I didn't know we were trying to eliminate the virus. I thought lockdowns were agreed to in order to flatten the curve or help with contact tracing when there's a really serious actual high risk. Anyway, good to know. Carry on, Mark. I can confirm uh, that WA has recorded no new cases of COVID-19 overnight. This is a fantastic result. It shows an immediate lockdown has delivered the results uh, that we needed. The short three-day lockdown has done the job it was, des it was designed to do. Now, this one is just a flat-out porky. If there were going to be infections in the community, they would have already been there. And if there weren't, they already weren't there. The lockdown has nothing to do with it. It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to allow contact tracers time to contact trace. It was the circuit breaker we needed to limit community spread and keep our community healthy. Hmm, kind of. Yes, it helps limit community spread if you have time to contact trace, but shutting down the state or a city or two for three days also is an abominable infringement on your citizens' fundamental rights and causes actual harm to people and their livelihoods and their health, as we've pointed out a million times before. So it should only be done as an absolute last resort when there's a significant risk of transmission. And this just doesn't pass the test, Mark Olmate. In relation to close and casual contacts and their test results, I can provide the following update. Of the 354 current close contacts, 222 have returned a negative test result so far with other results pending. Of those close contacts, 50 people were from the Kitchen Inn restaurant in Cardinia, and all 50 have returned negative test results. Currently, there are 748 casual contacts that have been identified and 329 of those have returned a negative result so far. So see the theme? Nobody's got the thing. There's no COVID. Once again, nothing. Carry on. The testing that has been conducted has been exceptional. It's great testing, the best. The testing has been a huge success, spectacular testing, among the best testing anywhere in the world. People come up to him all the time in the street and say, Mark, you're testing, it's so good, it's the best. Can we get some of your testing over here? So again, thank you to everyone that has been tested. Western Australians have done their bit to keep our community safe. It's a credit to each and every one of you. I wish we didn't have to go into lockdown, but it has been necessary and it's worked. This virus is so unpredictable. Nah, it's been pretty predictable so far, mate. Pretty predictably not spreading anywhere. But anyway, hey, WA, big pat on the back for you all, hey? You rock. And you voted this guy back in with an increased majority and no opposition left to speak of. It's just super. But you're not getting all your freedoms back yet. Oh, no. We need to train you to be really appreciative and give you a stepped approach. We can't go back to where we were like last week just yet. This step-down approach will give us confidence to begin to get back to normal while we wait for further testing and the incubation period of the virus to come to an end. 
The interim restrictions will be in place for the next four days. That is from 12.01am Tuesday, that's tonight, through to 12.01am on Saturday morning. As we receive more test results, we'll review the situation in a few days and then detail the plan for Saturday and onwards. Here come the rules. From tomorrow, people in the Perth and Peel regions will be free to leave their homes. Thank you, Your Majesty. Masks will remain mandatory, as they are now, both indoors and outdoors and on public transport. Oh, OK. I understand there will be a lot of questions and there will be some confusion. Coming out of lockdown is no easy task. It's about balancing things out and coming to a point that is in the best interest of the whole community based on the latest health advice. Hmm. But no economic advice, civil liberties advice, business advice, mental health advice. It's not balanced, Mark. It's not proportional. It's not necessary. You're out of control. Anyway, we need to wrap up with some more jingoism and rah-rah about how WA is better than anywhere else on the planet, especially the evil East Coast states. It has been tough, but I know WA has done it before. We have bounced back. West Australians are resilient and we do what we do best. That is, we just get on with the job. This is why I'm so proud of the state in which we live. WA is still the best place in the country and still one of the most fortunate and safest place in the world. Not only is he fully aware of the game he's playing, he sounds like he can't even be bothered to put any energy into his performance at all. Not even a drop of acting. He just recites it like he's reading the telephone book. But we keep on buying it. And I'm not just picking on our friends in WA. We're just as daft in my home state of Queensland and in Victoria. You're not alone, Perth. We are all gullible idiots together. And there's more good news for people who thought they were citizens of this great land who are stuck overseas, torn apart from their loved ones. Well, I've got the Commonwealth to agree now uh, to halving the number of people that we quarantine. So that will go down to 512 uh, from uh, the coming Thursday. So uh, that will mean a reduction in returning people to Australia uh, as of Thursday. That will help us to manage the load of people. Uh, but I think, uh, as I, I think I said yesterday, um, we um, will have to recalibrate how many people we can take. Uh, I think it will be a reduction, probably quite significant, on the 1,025, uh, because we can't have these sorts of things occur again. What sort of things? Nothing happened. But yes, you need to recalibrate recalibrate the fundamental rights of your fellow Australian citizens stuck overseas from returning home to their own country. There's only one leader that makes any sense in this country, and that's New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. She had this swipe at Mark McGowan for being such a coward this week. Well, I've said from the outset, it's really important for all states to really pull their weight. And, you know, I would be more than happy to have a system which determined how many people you can bring back, how many Australians you can bring back based on the population of your state. Um, we've been doing the heavy lifting in New South Wales uh, since the quarantine system was put in place. And I'd be very disappointed if because of an incident, a Premier decided they didn't want to take as many people home, welcome as many people home, because it does then put extra pressure on New South Wales. Um, but look, these incidents are going to happen. We deal with it. Gladys even calls out the federal government and criticises her own party when they're being stupid. Last week, when Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt said that vaccination alone was no guarantee we could open up the country, 
Gladys wasn't having a bit of it. That's the biggest load of rubbish I've ever heard. Um, the vaccination program will change our lives. The vaccination program will allow us to live with COVID uh, in a better way. Gladys Berejiklian giving a serve to her Liberal Party colleagues, the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt. We need more sensible, balanced risk management like that from Gladys. And we need to honour our moral obligation to all Australians to be allowed to leave and to return to their own country whenever they want to. This current state of affairs is an utter disgrace. Channel 7 Melbourne had this extraordinary story for us on Sunday night. An investigation's underway into why Year 11 boys were made to stand up in front of their class for being male, white and Christian. A youth worker's presentation to the school in Melbourne's southeast left students shocked and parents outraged. This is absolutely unbelievable and inexcusable. It's cultural Marxism being shoved down our kids' throats by people who have no place doing so. Here's a bit of the story from Channel 7's Georgia Commonsoli. During a talk about privilege and pronouns given by a female council worker, male students were asked to stand up if they were white, male or Christian and were told they were responsible for being privileged and oppressors. The talk was facilitated through the local council. The presentation is intended to help people understand diversity. It dumbfounds me. I'm very disappointed as to how this, is, this has occurred. Principal David Russell says the school is extremely disappointed that the presentation was supposed to support people from gender diverse backgrounds. I've asked for an urgent investigation to, to go into that matter to understand exactly what was the course designed to do as in how was it going to be executed. Are you following? Yep, that is the CEO of the council that authorised this talk and the principal of the school, both of them, saying how outraged they are by it. Well, it's a bit late after it's happened, gentlemen. Why didn't the teacher in the room put a stop to it immediately when the boys were asked to come up the front? Or was there no teacher present? I'm sorry, Mr Kingston Council CEO Tim Tamlin and Mr Principal of Parkdale Secondary School David Russell, you both need to take responsibility for your own leadership failing and fix the system that allowed this disgraceful thing to fall through the cracks. But here's the thing. This is not the first time this has happened in Victoria. It's the second time Victorian male students have been made to stand based on their gender after Warrnambool's Brower College students were forced to apologise for their gender's behaviour. How do we end up in this situation? Because it should never have happened. That's a very good question, Mr Council CEO, who's supposed to be in charge of all this, pretending it had nothing to do with him or his own shortcomings. What were you thinking facilitating this if you didn't check whether the woman delivering it wasn't mentally deranged by gender politics? This is child abuse. We have irresponsible adults who are so dumb that they buy into identity gender politics, abusing our boys. It's not good enough. So who's responsible for all of this in the Victorian government? Guess. None other than the acting premier himself, James Molino, who also happens to be the education minister when he's not filling in for the world's worst premier by being the world's second worst premier. I repeat, this is child abuse. Seriously, you know, all this identity politics crap that's destroying our culture and our society makes me angry enough. But this, when they start abusing kids, 15-year-old boys being told to feel sorry and ashamed for being a white male or Christian, it's just become too much. 
Fixed it. Fix it, Mr. Molino. Put in place clear guidelines to all teachers that the public or private shaming of kids is not tolerated in Australia. And if they see a colleague or any invited speaker doing anything like this at another Victorian school, they're to immediately intervene and put a stop to it. It happened once on your watch at the Warrnambool School, now again at Parkdale. As the very witty Victorian Twitter identity Polybard says, Imagine people so dumb they couldn't even learn from history that happened mere weeks ago. Spot on, mate. So, this happened in America this week. State investigators in Columbus, Ohio, are probing the fatal police shooting of a black teenager in a confrontation caught on body camera video that appeared to show her holding a knife and lunging at two people. Find the defendant guilty. The incident happened Tuesday around the same time a Minneapolis jury convicted a white former police officer of murdering George Floyd last year by kneeling on his neck. Her shooting triggered immediate protests in Columbus, Ohio's biggest city and the state capital. That was in the state of Ohio. I'm going to let young American commentator Joel Patrick explain what happened next. He posted this very good commentary online this week. Immediately, I began searching for more news articles, and I found this one by NPR. Columbus police shoot and kill black teenage girl. And this one from ABC News. 16-year-old girl fatally shot by police in Ohio. And this one from the Washington Post. Ohio police fatally shoot black teenage girl. The only people that were remotely honest in their take on this story was CNN, surprisingly, with this article. Ohio police officer shot and killed a black teenage girl holding a knife. The police did not just show up and kill a little girl because she was black. They showed up and observed a young lady fighting with two other young ladies, rushing towards one of them with a knife. When that girl fell, she turned and rushed toward another girl who was pinned up against a car, and the police shot her when she was mid-swing with a knife. Despite the media and her own family members' lies, there is body camera footage to confirm all of this. Watch what her aunt had to say. You know what they did? She didn't have no knife or nothing in her hand. Tell the truth. They came up to the 15-year-old girl, shot her four times. Tell the truth. The knife was on the ground. Shot her four times. Okay? Yeah, she had a knife in her hand. Yeah, she had a knife for him. No weapon in her hand. 15 They killing black folks. They don't care. They don't care. Here's a screen grab from the body camera footage. Clearly, the knife is still in her hand. There's no such thing as a good shoot, but there is such a thing as a justifiable use of force. If you believe Black Lives Matter, then you will agree that the two other black girls that she would have stabbed lives mattered as much as Micaiah's. And the police officer saved two lives by taking Micaiah's. I would like to point out that last year, 1,500 people died from stab wounds inflicted by knives. And for the person who asked, why couldn't they have used a taser? Well, there's a police officer in Nashville, Tennessee, that was shot after tasing a woman who, while she was being tased, reached into the center console and pulled a firearm and shot the police officer three times. 
Of course, this incident sparked outrage and people are already marching in the streets in Columbus. This is why we have such a hard time getting behind any activist movement in today's day and age because people will pick the wrong people to advocate for. If you are against violence against young black girls, then maybe it's time to stand up against the gang violence that kills young black girls. You are probably not familiar with Jaslyn Adams. Jaslyn Adams was a seven-year-old girl who was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting at a McDonald's, seven years old. Now she's not going to get any marches or mass protests because she was killed by another African-American. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, nearly 9,000 African-Americans are killed every year by other African-Americans and none of them get marches or riots or special interest groups raising money for them. When someone is killed, it's a tragedy because someone was killed. Their skin color is irrelevant. That's American online commentator Joel Patrick with the other side of that story for us. The Daily Wire's excellent commentator Michael Knowles also had some of the best analysis on this case during the week. Cop pulls out his, his gun. You've got, you got the footage right there. This girl, Makia Bryant, is wielding a giant knife. A pull, wraps it around on the side, is about to plunge it down into this other girl, is inches away from it, and then the cop rightly shoots the attacker. That is the only thing that he could do while still doing his job and pursuing justice. A just society would give this cop a medal. A just society would give this cop an award. He saved a girl's life and shot a knife-wielding attacker. Our society is going to try to destroy him, is going to try to put him in prison, is going to try to ruin his family, is going to call him a racist because he shot one black girl to save another black girl who was about to be stabbed by the first black girl. But that makes him a racist somehow. That's what's going to happen here. Some people want to, they want to say, look, can't we just all get along? Can't we just have it both ways? Can't look, maybe he shouldn't have done that, but you know, look, I guess the girl had a knife, but you know, maybe he should, it's, it's just a really sad thing. It's a tragedy. We'll get to the tragedy in a second because we have to get through some of the, the stupid questions surrounding this first. I kid you not. There is the suggestion on the left that the officer should have not shot, shot the victim, or shot the perpetrator rather, shot to kill. He should have just shot her in the ankle or something, shot her in the wrist, shot her in the, shot the gun right out of her hand. This was a question posed to the police chief yesterday. There was a threat going on, a deadly force threat that was going on. So the officer is trained to shoot center mass, the the largest part, part of a body that is available to them. When you try to start shooting legs or arms, uh, rounds miss, and then they continue on, and there are people behind that that could be in danger that are not committing anything. Uh, so we try and minimize any danger to anyone else if we have to use our firearm. Why couldn't he just shot her in the leg? One, she's moving like crazy. Two, actually, I'm sorry, the first consideration here is she's got a knife inches from this girl's body. She's got a knife coming down very quickly on this girl's body. So shooting her in the leg, probably not a smart idea, even if it did work. Second, leg, very very small area, moving very rapidly. 
You've got lots of people around. You don't need bullets spraying everywhere. When you pull out a weapon and you shoot that weapon at somebody, you are shooting to kill that person. That's just the way it works. That's what guns do. That's what guns are for. And by the way, cops have guns for a reason. Cops have guns to stop bad guys from doing bad things. In our very degraded culture, race-obsessed culture, cynical culture, it's an act of racism. And I'm not saying it's just some kook nut idiot on the internet. This is what is being pushed without any evidence, actually in the face of all the evidence, by the White House. Jen Psaki mouthing off on a subject about which she knows nothing to gain political advantage by smearing people as racists. The killing of 16-year-old Michaela Bryant by the Columbus police is tragic. She was a child. We're thinking of her friends and family and the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts uh, black and Latino people in communities and that black women and girls, like black men and boys, experience higher rates of police violence. We also know that there are particular vulnerabilities that children in foster care, care like Micaiah, face. And her death came, as you noted, just as America was hopeful of a step forward after the traumatic and exhausting trial of Derek Chauvin and the verdict that was reached. So our focus is on um, working to address systemic racism and implicit, implicit bias head on, and of course, to passing laws and legislation that will put much needed reforms into place at police departments around the country. It's implicit bias. It's, uh, it's racism. It's what am I basing that on? Nothing. Well, I'm probably what the, the victim, the person who was about to be stabbed, was that a white person? No. Okay. Wasn't a white person. Oh, it's too bad. That would have made my argument easier. Well, whatever. It's just, it's racism. You know, everything's racism. It's implicit too. So if the fact that I can't point to it proves how, you know, super duper implicit and racist it is. We really live in upside down world in Western culture these days, don't we? That's Michael Knowles from The Daily Wire there, bringing some sanity back for us. Have you noticed, Matt Wong, that when you watch the news, nobody smiles anymore? First of all, you use my last name out of me, but second of all, you're supposed to be serious. It's news. <laughs> Is it news? Is it news? Watch The People's Project 7.30 p.m. Fridays on Discernible YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. China's Belt and Road Initiative, the global plan for world domination by the communists in Beijing, was dealt a small blow from Australia this week as Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne tore up secret deals that the Victorian state government of Dan Andrews had done with China behind the federal government's back and without its approval. The Belt and Road Initiative is China's master plan in which they will pay or lend money to build infrastructure projects all over the world for countries that will connect them to China and enable China's control of those major trade lines. Some critics say that the Belt and Road Initiative is also about making small, poor countries forever financially in debt to China. That a state government can think it has the right to do deals with foreign powers hostile to Australia is outrageous. And the Morrison government has, thankfully, slapped Dan Andrews back into place. The risks associated with state pollies and petty bureaucrats overreaching their authority was made very clear by the Outsiders show on Sky News Australia last year, 
when host Rowan Dean asked US Defence Secretary Mike Pompeo how he felt about the deals. Rowan Dean was claiming a moral victory for his show this week, and rightly so, I reckon. I had an exclusive interview here on Outsiders with Donald Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, in which I did what no other Australian had done. I specifically raised the issue of Victoria signing up to the Belt and Road Initiative with the most powerful man in the Western Alliance. At that point, it was clear that Secretary Pompeo was unaware of the deal. But his immediate response was that if the US felt their security was being compromised by such a deal, to quote, the US would simply disconnect from Australia. Communications infrastructure, any risk to the national security elements of what we need to do with our Five Eyes partners, we're going to protect and preserve the security of those institutions to the extent they have an adverse impact on our ability to protect telecommunications from our private citizens or security networks for our defense and intelligence communities. We will simply disconnect. We will simply separate. We're going to preserve trusted networks for important information. We hope our friends and partners and allies across the world, especially our Five Eyes partners like Australia, will do the same. According to The Guardian, all the lovies, my interview caused a diplomatic storm with the US ambassador being dragged out that Saturday afternoon, that Sunday afternoon to hose down Pompeo's comments. The ABC and The Guardian, of course, attacked me personally and outsiders as being some fringe freak show and questioned why Pompeo had chosen to be interviewed by me and not by some reputable media outlet. I presume they meant themselves. But the reality is no other journalist or government official in this country had bothered or dared to raise the issue of Dan Andrews' deals with Communist China at such a high level in the US administration. The Chinese Communist Party's mouthpiece, the Global Times, also joined in the fun of slagging off outsiders. But now the tables have turned and it is Dan Andrews who has been simply disconnected from the Belt and Road Initiative. That's Rowan Dean on Sky News Australia's Outsiders program. Thank God we don't just listen to The Guardian all the time and we at least have some sensible media in this country that has the guts to ask the right and obvious questions of the right people. It's called journalism. The Guardian should try it sometime. I mentioned in last week's show that ScoMo needed to find his mojo and that there were some encouraging signs the government was starting to take back control of the national agenda from the loony left and its obsession with gender, race and sexuality issues. The latest exclusive news poll conducted for the Australian newspaper this week shows the coalition still training Labor on the two-party preferred count 49 to 51. But the Liberals and Nationals have had their second consecutive improvement and there's been a rebound in approval ratings for the Prime Minister up from 52 to 56% approval. Labor's Anthony Albanese slid two points from 32 to just 30% approval. Keep those strong decisions coming, folks. You might also want to rein in the Labor's premiers next. Oh, and get the Aussies back home that want to come home. Well, as you've no doubt heard, 27-year-old Kelly Wilkinson's body was found in the rear of a Gold Coast house on Tuesday morning, badly burned. Her estranged husband has been charged with her murder. And this horrific killing comes less than 18 months after the murders of Hannah Clark and her three children, which shocked Brisbane to its core back in February last year. 
Hannah and her children, aged six, four, and three, were ambushed by her estranged husband, Rowan Baxter, in their car on the morning school run when he doused them in petrol and set them alight in the upmarket Brisbane suburb of Camp Hill. In both cases, that state's system of restraining orders failed. The alleged killer in the latest incident was given bail a week earlier from a watch house and was due to face court on four serious matters this week. Queensland's Assistant Police Commissioner says there's going to be a review to examine all contact between police and Kelly Wilkinson in the lead-up to her death. The review will run alongside a task force that's already examining domestic and sexual violence. There's a lot of really caring and good people out there, police, social workers, and even politicians and bureaucrats trying to find a solution. Well, joining me on the show today is social commentator Edie Wyatt. Edie has written on gender politics and feminism for The Spectator magazine and Quillette magazine, and she's a tough critic of the feminist left. So she understands social science and gender politics very deeply, but doesn't drink the Kool-Aid, which is why I wanted to have her on the show. Edie, thanks for joining us. Before we get into the discussion about the way in which modern left-wing feminism uses these social issues for political gain, we do have a real problem here. From July to January, seven months, there have been more than 16,000 DVO applications made in the state of Queensland, 73% on behalf of women, 27% for men. In January alone, there were more than 3,000 reported breaches of those orders. Six years ago, the number was less than half that. The system just isn't working anymore. And how can we fix it, do you think? What I think we need to do is look seriously at the needs of uh, families and women and uh, young people, children, and we need to prioritise the vulnerable in that situation rather than keep putting these things in grand uh, theories. You know, uh, probably the, the coronavirus has had some effect. Uh, probably there's, there's other factors in terms of family breakdown. Um, but we need to stop making, making those kind of jumps and start looking at the data and uh, the services that women need um, in terms of, uh, you know, domestic violence shelters. And we need to talk to those people who are on the ground. I find these, these tragedies horrific. And I think we need to be focused on, and I think the police are, um, and, and certainly politicians seem to be. But are you, con- are you concerned by what we see from the feminist left on this stuff? Uh, the problem they always pose is masculinity and femininity. Uh, and the problem is always broken masculinity. Um, and if we just re-engineer masculinity, then somehow we're going to come to a place where men are like women and they won't, they won't be killing people. And it's very simplistic and it's not backed by any science um, and it's boring, frankly, and it's unhelpful, it's especially unhelpful for women and it's unhelpful for girls. Um, and that's what feminism is. It's supposed to be the advocacy. Uh, for women and girls, and we're not, it's not helping anybody. You've spent a lot of time in academia uh, and going through the social sciences. Uh, how do intelligent people, apparently intelligent people, get swept up in this very simplistic worldview and this critical gender theory, critical Marxism sort of lens, do you think, and they can't seem to, to get out of it? Why are they stuck in it? 
we could say that they, they believe it because they're not intelligent enough, but I don't think that's true. I think they, they buy into it because it's, it's a system of power um, and humans find that irresistible. They, you know, women are the same as men. You know, they, they like uh, to, to, to have wield some sort of power. Queensland's also uh, looking at the request of, of Hannah Clark's uh, grieving parents that coercive control uh, is to be made a crime. The Palaszczuk government says it'll introduce such laws within the next four years. Uh, what What is coercive control, Edie? And is it something that can actually be measured and made a crime or is it too vague and complex, do you think? I'm not sure. I've, I've done, I mean, I know what co- co- coercive control is, the control of one partner by the other. And so it, it, it covers things like, you know, most of us have known People like this, uh, they they start to monitor their partner's phone. Uh, they they take control of their finances. They basically make them a slave in their own home. Um, how that what that would look like, I've got no idea. I know that uh, Scotland has these measures, and I've tried to investigate that. But the only thing that I can, and it's only mostly left wing media which are talking about it. The only thing that uh, I've read is that that some of the things that we are worried about haven't happened but that's what they always say. Um, I'm always concerned as I've moved towards uh, the, the right uh, to a more classic liberal position, I've become more concerned with government control. Um, and I think the Clark family, you know, um, they're in favour of this legislation. Obviously, they, the, the situation that happened with Hannah, you know, was only streets from my house. It's, it's, a, it's a situation none of us want to hear uh, mm. want to hear again that but it has is happening again um, but I don't think they would be against uh, rigorous debate um, and we need to we need to separate um, you know our our feelings about these things from the practicality of the legislation whether it would whether it would help these women I want them helped you know I mean we all go over these situations in our head and think how could it have been different? How could we have present, prevented this? How as a society have we have we borne these people that would do such a thing? And how have we not been able to protect this, you know, these women and these children um, from this situation? What doesn't seem to be helping, in my view, are what I like to call the political vampires who use these issues to push a leftist agenda by implying that there's some kind of systemic sexism uh, going on and they can just blame all men and then and then feel good about themselves. Uh, and I think this is why so many men are hostile uh, or, or put up a barrier when, when, when attacked or accused um, in relation to these sorts of very, very horrific spot incidents. Um, and I think this was a point made pretty well um, by Janet Albrechtson this week in The Weekend Australian. Uh, she gave a pretty scathing re- critique of some of the modern left-wing feminists in our culture, like focusing mainly on on Jane Caro. And she quoted one of Jane Caro's recent tweets. Women are cautious. If you even smile, meet the eyes of a bloke, or call a boss by his first name, that can be read as an invitation. So we don't smile, we keep our eyes down, and we never use a man's first name until we know him really well. Power is using first names without fear. And then a large number of uh, people <laughs> jumped in to criticise that comment from 
Jane Caro pretty quickly, uh, including this one from uh, Vision Splendid. Uh, that's utter rot. I'm an attractive, smart woman and never think about doing those things. Men respect me. I treat them as equals. If that's how you interact with men, then I'd ask, what's wrong with you? Seek help, Jane. You certainly shouldn't be giving advice to young women. Christine writes, geez, you must have worked in some strange places. You sound like a handmaiden. I started work at age 15 and had numerous jobs and never experienced any of that. And Bob Mann writes, I've been privileged to have many wonderful and amazing women in my life and not one of them would want to be associated with any opinion or point of view of yours, let alone have you speak on their behalf. Talk about being delusional. And the most important and my favorite of all of these tweets comes from uh, Sassy Osgirl, who says, no power is standing up to virtue-seeking twits like you who jump on the woke bandwagon. Every man I meet in business or personal life, I make eye contact. I smile and I use the name they prefer as I introduce myself by the name I prefer to be called. That is called communication, Jane. So Edie, what is your view of, of feminists like Jane Caro, Clementine Ford, Van Batham, these people who seem to use these tragedies to promote that wider political agenda? I understand where she's coming from because she's trying to uh, level a kind of cultural power um, and a cultural victimhood. Um, I don't think that's very helpful. You know, I don't think that's relevant when we're talking about um, women who need protection, women and girls and boys. I mean, when we're talking about domestic violence, one of the things that men's rights advocates do say is that men are affected by domestic violence, and that's true. Um, they're, they're affected as boys, you know, uh, and they're affected through their lives. Um, so not only when women are the perpetrators, but they're also affected when men are the perpetrators. And um, we can't have an honest conversation. And that's the problem. The, the, the cultural left dominate language. They dominate the conversation. And conservatives need to stop feeding into that. You know, they need to stop complaining about crazy Clementine Ford. You know, I mean, I know you know, the, the mother's advice is to ignore them and they'll go away and they haven't gone away. Um, but I, I just don't find them, any of them, very interesting. They're, well, we need to know. broaden the discussion, don't we? I mean, I mean, we, do, we, yeah. we, we need to stop taking the bait. I mean, I think... Of course. Uh, and stop, and like and stop being frightened to... to talk about male violence, you know. I, I try and focus my myself on grassroots feminism because I want women and girls to be protected. I came, I was made homeless by uh, violence myself. Um, my husband's from a family with, you know, family violence. Um, I, know, I know what it does and I know how vulnerable people can be. Um, and I'd like to talk about it in, in a way in terms of policing. You know, these, these numpties also, they're, they're talking about, uh, you know, they're coming against the police. You know, this one of the things that the, the Clark family said was that the police, you know, they want more legislation around being able to help women, but they also are saying that the police were extremely helpful to them. Yeah. And I would say the same thing. You know, all these stories about Brittany, uh, Brittany Higgins, um, about how, you know, she didn't go to the police and women frightened to go to the police. You know, I went to the police and the police were excellent. 
the police are excellent. I mean, they're extremely well trained around this stuff now, and, and we're, we're very lucky. And and feminism yeah. is is very responsible for building the police. Uh, fem, feminism and liberalism, the, their structures, which have their ideologies, which have said we need an independent police force. That's not yeah. just at the service of an oligarchy. Well, men are certainly not going to be comfortable talking about male violence broadly. I don't think unless. They don't themselves don't feel like they're being judged and attacked. I cer- I certainly get my back up when, and I've broken away from a lot of my my uh, on the th- not broken away completely broken away in terms of this thinking from a lot of my feminist female friends because I I can't buy into this new narrative as a man. I mean, it just it just uh, villainizes men too much, and and I'm somebody who wants to look for solutions to to violence. Um, but men are more aggressive and more violent for a reason, because throughout history they've had to be the ones who fought the wars. They have to be the ones who, though they have been the ones that have had the traditional protector role, and they are physically and biologically stronger. And that's why. And then there's the hormones on top of that, right? To, which makes men more aggressive. Now, of course, there's a flip side to that, and that flip side has to be reined in. But to call masculinity and all masculinity, or imply which they do, let's face it, that all masculinity. Uh, is toxic, um, is an absurd position that's going to leave us, um, I think, culturally in a very dangerous place and leaves young men and, and young boys extremely confused about how to manage their own natural sense of aggression and assertion and physicality. Um, so so I, I'm very troubled about that, and I'm troubled about that making the domestic violence situation and problem worse. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, I'm all for um, teaching young men um, respect and um, what what it means to have consent. But Mm. I'm also for, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about coercive control, maybe teaching young girls, instead of all this gender nonsense, um, some of the risks of being a heterosexual girl, for instance. Um, and, And one of them, one of the things that, is a risk is to fall into uh, a, a controlling relationship that can be deadly for girls and women. I mean, men can fall into them too, but, you know, as a feminist, I, I'm always concentrating on girls. I've got girls myself. Um, let's talk to young girls about some of the signs that they can uh, avoid in early early flags that they can um, try and avoid. Um, we have massive... Um massive cultural problems for men as well of course with the the whole you know three times the rate of suicide i mean it, th- these, those statistics blow the blow the, the the domestic violence death statistics out of the the water although it's not a competition let me stress i'm not saying that but and men, but it men is kill a themselves terrible, much sorry. more than they kill us i mean that's true yeah we're, we're not but even talking in those terms uh, men get nervous because you start saying oh well it's not all men and it's not not all men, but it is a if 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 we're going to be feminists, we need to advocate for women and girls. And one of the risks to women and girls is male violence, and we, we need to be able to talk about that. And the cultural left are doing nothing to help us do that because all they want is more money uh, for themselves. They want to they talk about the wage gap because that's all they're allowed to talk about, right? That they've got in in the intersexual world, intersectional world, they're only allowed to talk about. Uh, women's wages and culture, pretty much. That's all. They can't talk about the violence uh, the Indigenous girls are suffering, um, and girls and women. They can't even listen to Indigenous women who are 
trying to take leadership in their community. They can't even talk to, talk to the matriarchs of the Indigenous community who are trying to advocate for themselves um, because it's against uh, critical race theory ideology. So Yeah. It's like we're funding critical race theory ideology. We're not funding solutions to the domestic violence problem, right? That's what's frustrating. And I find, you know, from a man's perspective, um, we, we have problem with boys at the moment. We need to teach boys to use that masculinity and that aggression and that natural difference, that biological difference in the traditional protector role. And boys, I firmly believe now that boys are wired to have this kind of, there is the white knight archetype, you know, the protector archetype. And men get great sense, a great sense of self-worth from that. And maybe we're seeing depression and suicide skyrocketing because men don't have that sense of self-worth um, and and the violence um, is coming out in all the wrong ways and it's not being channeled where it should be channeled in protecting, it's being channeled, uh, you know, in, in power struggles, uh, and, and in sexual frustration, all that sort of stuff that, you know, it's complicated and we need to be able to have these conversations without this sort of uh, critical Marxist theory overlay, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and we find that, you know, pornography is a huge problem and they're disconnecting from women. Um, they're disconnecting from their own sense of self. Uh, we, need allow, allow to, we need to allow diversity and I'm a big fan of that. A lot of women, you know, will, as soon as you start talking about you know, chivalry and male protection, they start to back up. But, you know, men need to find their own way and and also accept that some men are quite feminine. Totally. I'm not, yeah, exactly. I mean, some men don't have, this, there are differences in the degree of, you know, testosterone and the biology or their choices that they're making to be more feminine, create different types of men doing different forms of expression. And that, I was one. I wasn't the most sporty kid at school, but... Um, you know, it's 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 fine. We can accept all of that, and we did fight for that. Just going back to Janet Albrechtson, she writes in her article, we could do with more free agents who break away from the imposed bonhomie of the Australian sisterhood too. The alternative is that we, sisters, all stick together and collectively hurtle down Jane Caro's bizarre rabbit hole. Disagreeing with Caro doesn't mean denying the very real issues, but can we please have some balance and common sense? She goes on, the recurring problem among a cohort of left-wing feminists, especially those of a certain age, is that they seem to think that they've assumed some kind of mystical status that allows them to speak for all women. They don't get to drag the rest of us into their narrow, shallow world comprised of two kinds of people, enfeebled women and menacing men. Here's a bit the narrative, isn't it, Edie? That's just, you know, women are, it's a, it's a contradiction. You know, women are weak and, and, and need this you know, they're too weak to stand up for themselves. They're too weak to go to the police. They're too weak to mount it. I don't find that to be true. You look at women, young women like Grace Tame are as strong as, uh, as anything. And also the concept that all men are just these menacing sexual predators that are all trying to, which is an absurdity. Um, and this is not to say that we don't have sexual predators out there, that we don't have men who behave badly and we don't have uh, women who are psychologically weak or who are behaving badly and highly manipulative. So... You know, the, the the issues are real, um, but this sort of blanket, you know, narrative, simplistic narrative that these feminists want to put, these modern third wave, fourth wave feminists want to put these things into is uh, is pretty troubling. Well, you know, I always say when I'm discussing with them politely, of course, on Twitter, um, <laughs> he said, 
you know, for people that don't like patriarchy, you sure do want a daddy pretty badly. You know, they, they always want the state to be their daddy. Um, it, they, don't, they, they don't barely open their mouths without asking uh, for the state to, um, to do something about something, you know. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying the solutions aren't in the state, um, but the systems that we've set up in terms of um, policing and domestic violence prevention, those kind of grassroots solutions are, are really what um, I would want to focus on and that what are, what those exact women are putting at risk. Edie, you're a fascinating person. I love talking to you and I'd love to have you back on the show again sometime. Thanks for the opportunity. And that was Edie Wyatt, academic, social commentator and writer. You can read Edie's latest columns in The Spectator Australia and Quillette magazine and you can follow her on Twitter at Ms Edie Wyatt. And by the way, if you're not following the show on Twitter, please do so at my Twitter handle, which is at dcoury, D-C-O-O-R-Y. Well, it's been a bit of a heavy show this week. Time for some light relief. This week, a new video dropped from four very, very funny American comedians, Menon Matthews, Nicole Arbor, J.P. Sears and Brent Peller, on how to victimize yourself. We as a society need more self-made victims. <laughs> and you can be more of a victim than you ever thought possible. You just have to believe. We're here to help. Just listen. To victimize yourself, find someone else to blame for how you make yourself feel. Tell them why it's their fault. Everything about you and your life is their fault. And they need to know that. Your feelings are their fault because they're yours. They might have trouble understanding why it's their fault. Typical abuser. That's of course because they don't care about you. If they cared, they would already know what they did to you in your mind. How could they? <laughs> But because they probably won't understand, explain it to them in simple terms by getting rageful. The angrier you get and the louder you scream, the more wrong they are. That way they'll understand that the scope of pain you're causing yourself is their fault. The more pain you have, the more significant you feel. That's convenient. Victimize yourself even further by canceling them. Canceling people? is one of the most loving ways to victimize yourself. Canceling a whole group is even better. Ruin their lives because your life already feels ruined. Hate them and hurt them because you hurt inside. As you cancel them, now's the time to virtue signal. Do this by accusing them of being something horrible. This will set up a manipulative psychological trick where you plant yourself to be the opposite of that horrible something. Which is always something virtuous. So it could sound like, you're hateful, you're uninclusive, you're racist. Virtue signaling! And don't worry, it doesn't matter if they're not racist. This isn't about them, this is about you. And you're about hurting others for your gain of a heightened degree of significance. Uh, it's very good stuff. Make sure you check out the whole video at the link in our program notes or just search up JP Sears on YouTube. Well, that's it for the show this week. We'll see you next week. We upload on Wednesday nights on Discernible and later on the Good Source platform. And don't forget to subscribe on all platforms and tell your friends about the show to help us grow. We need your help. Until next week, stay free and don't let the woke kids get you down.